Hello and welcome back to another episode of A Cozy Christmas Podcast. I'm your host, Art. Today we're going to talk about a little bit about what Grace and I have been doing to help celebrate the fact that October is here. Give you a hint, it takes place in the kitchen. <laughs> we made some delicious treats we want to share with you folks today. Unfortunately, we can't give you the food because we ate it all. And I find out it's pretty hard to mail an apple pie. I don't know. Ridiculous restrictions the uh, post office has on us. But what are you going to do? If I could, I would personally hand deliver each and every one of you a fresh baked apple pie. But that's not possible. So the next best thing is that you get to hear us talk about it. And then we are going to take a look at Christmas Down Under in Australia. We have uh, a listener from Australia who wrote in with a Christmas memory. I'm going to share that as well as a couple of stories I found. So let's deck the halls. Fall is here at last. The first week of October we enjoyed some wonderful early fall-like weather and it's been fun to watch the leaves begin to change. i am really been looking forward to the transition of summer into fall and into winter and watching the harvest happening and all that. So we're in a minute here going to head into the kitchen with Gracie. I do want to say I had meant to put this on the last episode, but I was really having some trouble with the audio and things with the last episode. And I had a whole segment about Jack Benny and old time radio that I wanted to talk about, but that got lost into the ether of wherever it is that digital files go when they disappear off your computer. I'm pretty sure I actually deleted it on accident or recorded over it. And so that's the kind of quality podcasting that yours truly is capable of. So now, without further ado, let's bake some goodies with Gracie. Gracie. Hello. How was school today? Uh, it was online. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> All right. Well, Gracie, we're gonna we're gonna make something delicious today. Ooh, I what, think. What are we making? Um. Well, somebody gave us a bunch of apples from their backyard, so. Homegrown. So there's only one thing for it, and we need to make apple pie. Cause Christmas is coming. Yep. Uh, let's see. Christmas is coming. Less than 100 days. Away. Yeah, what is it, like 90 days? Maybe. Maybe. Around that. Somewhere Time. in there. Yeah. All right, I just checked. It's 86 days. Or was it 84? 86. Oh, 86. Okay. I'm munching on one of the apples. They're pretty good. No, you have to save them for the pie. Dad, we have like 700 million. You can munch on the pieces that are brown and gross. No, thank you. There you go. Nope. I'll leave those to you. Alright, so the first thing we're going to do is peel and core the apples. He's peeling. I'm using the apple ah, cutter. My hand. He's just playing. Don't do that. Okay, I won't do that. Ooh, there's a brown spot. Oh, that's disgusting. I wish you guys could see that. Uh, I hate when I think I find like the most delicious, crunchy, crispy apple and I bite into a giant bruise. It makes me like never want to eat apples again. Yeah. What What makes, what's the best apple? Like, um, what makes the apple, the, what, I don't know what I even mean here. Like what's the best? Yeah. What, like, what do you like an apple to taste like? Just, I or like. to be like. <laughs> okay. Jay, let me just rephrase your question for you. Yes. <laughs> what do you think a perfect apple should taste like? There we go. What um, do you think a perfect apple should taste like? Uh, I feel like to start off with, it shouldn't be mushy at all. It should be crispy and delicious, you know, nice and crunchy and no bruises, nothing, no bad spots, nothing gross. It should, um, whoops. <laughs> apple cutter it should be sweet it should have a nice like just sweet flavor that's not like too overpowering really you know like mm -hmm. sometimes you, I, yeah, it's kind of hard to find an apple that's overpoweringly sweet but 
it might happen, but, and it, that's pretty much it. It just needs to be crispy and really sweet and yummy. Just like me, crispy and sweet. <laughs> no? I'm okay. going to chop off my fingers. Well, let's not do that. <laughs> ah! Okay. Oh, now I'm playing around. Okay. I love homegrown apples, but like the taste of them, it seems like they taste a lot different from store-bought apples. But the complaint I have about them is they're like always bruised, you know? I, I think she's eating more apples than I'm putting in. <laughs> I ha this is my second slice. Oh, okay. Ooh. Hey, you, know, you know what's worse than finding a worm in your apple? Hmm. Finding half a worm in your apple. Did you just find half a worm? <laughs> no. I just found the hole, I think. <laughs> From a worm? It's fine. Disgusting. It adds a little extra protein to your oh, pie. Oh, oh, uh, yucky. That apple is... Alright. And yeah. I guess it'll all get mixed in the pie. Once you put butter and sugar in it, you won't taste anything anyway. <laughs> now this is going to be a lot better than your artificial apple pie. Go ahead and cut that and then I can get those gross spots off better. Oh, whoops, I cut it all crooked. Uh-oh. Wiggly, wiggly worm. It's not alive, but... Are you sure? I think that's just a seed. Or what is that, though? That's the apple seed, I think. Oh, it's just a seed. I thought they were just chunks of worm. Alright, false alarm. <laughs> Alright, how is school today? T tell me about school. It was adventurous. Basically, for online school, the rules are pretty much, you know, the same as if you are at regular school. You know, can't be goofing around. They even have a dress code and all that stuff. Oh, goodness. You know? Did they, have, did they have everybody stand up to show that they were all wearing pants? No. Oh, but okay. They also, you know, like no eating during lesson time. You know. Sure. They give you breaks to like, you know, go to the bathroom, get stuff ready, you know, all that kind of thing. 15 minute breaks. Mm -hmm. And you log back on. But I was in class and this girl, we're supposed to, we're on a Google Meet. So we're supposed to have our camera on. Mm -hmm. So, like, they can see our faces, so they know you're not, like, sneaking something or anything like that. Or, like, do, like, watching TV while they're trying to teach. Yeah. It, but, um, this one girl, I was realizing, like, she would never turn her camera on, like, the whole day. And when she did, I saw her munching on something. Uh -oh. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, oh. Was it the teacher? No, oh. it was, <laughs> it was a girl in my class, and I was like, so that's why she just has her camera off a lot, because she's sneaking stuff. Mm -mm. But, you know, I couldn't do anything about it, but, like, she was trying so hard to, like, sneak it, but she, I I could tell she was eating something. Because yeah. every minute I just hear, like, pick up something and be, like, shove it in her mouth and be, like, <laughs> chew it. Like, like you are with these apples, huh? No. Oh, okay. Whatever. But, yeah. <laughs> And, you know, it was kind of funny online because they had, they sent me an email of rules and expectations. And they're like, be in an area free from distraction or like where you can focus and work. An example, at your desk. Uh, not an example. In your bed with the covers pulled over your head. And I was like, I want to do that. Oh, no. Uh -oh. <laughs> it's fine, you guys. Ah! Okay, we're fine. <laughs> What'd you do to that poor apple? <laughs> I murdered it. <laughs> it looks like she's making applesauce. Just <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, gross! That's the top of it. <laughs> you cut it. You cut it backwards or something. I don't know. This is the top of it. <laughs> like the this part. Oh, so that's that's the, so you had it in there wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right, Grace and I are going to keep cutting apples, and we will be back for the next step. So now we are going to make the filling. The filling. What is it? Basically, sugar, cinnamon, flour. And butter. Butter comes later. Oh, okay. Because we're making a Dutch apple pie, so it's got a crumble top instead of a uh, crusty top. Yummy. So we're going to try that out. All right, so half a cup of granulated sugar. I'll get the cup, you granulate the sugar. 
Um, <laughs> the, we have pure granulated sugar. Listen to the sound effect of it thunking on the counter. <laughs> now everyone's speaker just blew up. <laughs> okay, that was a only like small package of it too. Half a cup of sugar. Yep, the bowl of the apples. Sprinkle that in. A fourth of a cup of all-purpose flour. Right, it's gonna. In the flour. It'd be a nightmare to spill um, sugar all over the floor. Yes, it would. Next is cinnamon. Ooh, how much of that do we need? One fourth teaspoon. Can we use chili powder instead? They're both red. No. Unless you want your apple pie to be spicy. All right, we're back. We found the cinnamon. Crisis averted. I looked, she looked, couldn't find it. And Asked then my wife. it was right there in plain sight in the cupboard. Yep. So, yep. so we, we are dumb. We just need more apple pie is what we need. Okay, so we are, are we done with the filling? Yes, I put in cinnamon and some nutmeg and ginger do you guys like the smell of ginger or no not ginger sorry nutmeg nutmeg it smells good smells like apple pie so that's good and just, just like fall okay. and pumpkin and I'm just looking at the, uh... i don't even know what it smells like but it makes me think of fall when i smell it ginger smells disgusting in my opinion but all right. It smells like kind of like moldy onions to me. <laughs> moldy onions? <laughs> I don't even know if onions can moldy. I think it's a moldy onions. Oh, that's one of the recipe ingredients. Yeah. Mm. Oh. <laughs> we're just kidding. Okay. Um, so now we're going to do the crumble topping. Ooh, yummy. And so basically we'll mix up the butter, the flour, the brown sugar. We, mix we it know what we're doing. And then there's a... Uh, thing you're supposed to use to help crumble it up. So I'm going to cut this in half. And so kids, following along at home, please make sure you have a grown-up use this, the knife, to cut the butter. Ow! Oh. Did you really just cut yourself? Oh, oh that's bleeding. Hit an artery. No, uh. no, he didn't. He's fine. <laughs> okay. Don't do stuff like that. You scare me. Oh, sorry. That's like the second time you've done that to me. You did it also when they were cutting apples. You want to soften the butter up? Probably don't want it like melted. Wow. This looks so good. What's in this? Sugar? Sugar, flour, seasonings, apple. Oh, oh, that's so good. Mm -hmm. Don't eat all the filling. <laughs> all right. Wow. Now we need flour. You Cup. guys have to make this. It's really good. Cup of flour. Okay, I'm going to assume we just all mix it together. Hope you're right, because we can't <laughs> take it out. He already dumped it in. And then two-thirds cup packed brown sugar. Uh, I like brown sugar, just when you put it in like a a measuring cup, or what do you call them? Uh, yeah, measuring cups, and then you flip it upside down in the bowl, and it just holds its shape. Bonk. Oh, it just holds its shape. Also, you probably already know this, but if you're need brown sugar but you don't have any, regular sugar and molasses just makes uh, brown sugar. And oh. by itself, you can't if you can tell there's a different taste in it, but mixed and stuff, you you can't tell the difference at all. I did not know that. Yeah, it's just white sugar and molasses. I'm touching it. Come on. Okay, so now that's gonna need to be mixed up. This is so satisfying. I'm just destroying it, you guys. Alright, so this is a Ooh, I've seen them use those thing. on avocados. Can I do it? It's to squish the butter with? Yeah, you're supposed to use it to mix it all up, I guess. All the butter is just getting stuck. <laughs> we got the crumble topping. You gotta make sure you actually put the right amount of butter in, which yeah, is Yeah, I, I did my math wrong, so I don't know. Not a problem. Oh, yeah. This looks more like it. Okay. Yep. Um, so what we did was we I just mixed it up with the, the what's it called? The, uh... I can't remember. Um... The roll pastry thingy. 
and you do it until it looks like a crumble top. So there's that. And if it doesn't look right to you or like not dark enough, check your measurements. You may have done it incorrectly. Right. Basically, don't follow our advice here. Just go look online for a recipe. <laughs> um, okay, so I got the pie crust in the pie, put the filling back. It's so good though. <laughs> okay. Ow, I just ran into the counter. <laughs> Ow! <laughs> I'm so clumsy. Oh. Hey, I'm going to gloop. My teacher is really clumsy too. She told me she was. She told the class she's like, "Yeah, I'm really clumsy." Cause several times she's tripped over the trash can in the classroom. <laughs> Are you eating more pie filling? <laughs> there is going to be no pie filling in this pie because Gracie's eaten it all. All right, so fill up your pie filling. Now we put the crumble top on, right? Yes. Now the crumble top, you will want to sprinkle gently on top, like a, like fairy dust. Okay. Like this. It yes. feels good. It's so soft. Sprinkle like fairy dust oh. all over the top. Of the beautiful. <gasps> I forgot to preheat the oven. Oof. Um, nine times out of ten, your apple pie won't cook unless you turn the oven on. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, you, sure you you sprinkle the top. I'm going to get the top, the oven turned on. It's like, this is like a powder, but, or like a... 400, okay. Like a, uh, it's like a crumble topping, but if you squish it, it turns into more like dough. It's weird. Oh, don't squish it. Sprinkle. <gasps> oh, you're going you're gonna to have to sweep that up. <laughs> Dang it. Now remember, the helper in your kitchen is the one who has to do the cleanup. What? So while Gracie does the dishes, I'm going to go sit and watch television. That's not what I do normally. Perfect enough. Does that look like enough topping? Do we need to make some more? I think, I think it looks good. Looks good enough to eat. Which I think is probably the point, right? Probably. Okay, so this says cook for 400. Degrees? No, 400 hours. No. No. Cook? Yeah. Bake if, you're, if your thing's going to be cooking for 400 hours, you're going to have apple... I don't even know what. Apple disaster. And um, it'll be completely black. Bake 45 to 55 minutes or until pie crust and crumb topping are deep golden brown and filling begins to bubble. Stop! You're making me hungry, recipe. Okay, so I'm going to wait for the oven to get hot. And then I'm going to yeet the pie into the oven. Yeet it? Yeet! Unless you want to ruin your masterpiece. Alright. Well, that was our uh, chaotic cooking show. Hope you enjoyed that. We'll, let, we'll uh, cook this up and then taste test it and let you know how it tastes. I'm sure it'll so. be delicious, too. Yep. Sugar, butter, you can't go wrong with that. No, no, no. Mm. Ooh, it does taste like apple pie. That's good. Get out of there. <laughs> All right, so long, everyone. <laughs> the apple pie was absolutely delicious. It was so good, I made two. Okay, Christmas Down Under. I got a listener email from Kate, and she lives in Australia. And I know next to nothing about Australia other than it's really big and really hot. Crocodile Dundee comes that lives there. And let's see what else do I know about Australia. Um, um it's uh, almost but not quite New Zealand. I, I don't know. <laughs> Like I said, I don't know anything about Australia. Oh, uh, Chris Hemsworth comes from Australia. There we go. Uh, so there's that. So thank you, Australia, for the gift that is Chris Hemsworth. Anyway, I'm off track. Kate uh, from Australia, she wrote me to share this memory. And today here in Iowa is a high of 87 degrees, which I'm not happy about. But since in Australia it's summer, I figured that this would be an appropriate day to talk about Christmas in Australia. And she wrote this. She says, I suppose my Christmas memories that I wanted to share are, are, are kind of new, not from childhood. 
In the last seven years, I had joined an international mothers group online. It's evolved over the years, and many have become friends, though we haven't met in person. I started to organize a Christmas ornament exchange maybe five years ago. I have many ornaments from all over the world, some handmade, some relating to their town, some just beautiful traditional themes. I usually send an Australian-themed one if I get an international partner. It's part of my favorite things to do at the start of the season, pulling the decorations out and hanging them on the tree, remembering where they came from. My kids love hearing about them too. And I can uh, relate to this, to this memory so much because our Christmas tree is full of ornaments that we have collected from our, our vacations and from our big events in our life. So for instance, I have uh, like a graduation ornament from when I graduated college. You, you know, we have some ornaments for our kids when they were first born and some things like that. But we like to pick up an ornament when we go on vacation. So we have some ornaments from South Dakota. We have some ornaments from out east and, and from all the different places we've gone that have been a lot of fun. As Kate says, her favorite part is to pull them out and remember what those ornaments are about and the memories that they have created. And so in a way, your tree becomes almost like a scrapbook and you can see all these memories. So we don't have any kind of a theme on our Christmas tree. We just cram them all on. You know, we have we have ornaments of all kinds on our tree and it's beautiful. And I, I think it's great to look at that and be reminded of so many memories from the years past. So I wanted to find out more about an Australian Christmas, and I found actually have found some stories to read for you. So for the, the first thing I want to read is a poem called An Aussie Night Before Christmas. And I found this on someone's blog, so it's not original with me. It's The Night Before Christmas, but it's from the Australian perspective. So there's going to be a lot of slang terms here and cultural references that I don't understand and am probably mispronouncing, but Chris Hemsworth didn't return my phone calls, so I can't have him read this for you. Um, so just imagine that I am an uglier, more American version of Chris Hemsworth will be set, okay? An Aussie Night Before Christmas Twas the night before Christmas, there wasn't a sound. Not a possum was stirring, no one was around. We'd left on the table some tucker and beer, hoping that Santa Claus soon would be here. We children were snuggled up safe in our beds, while dreams of pavlova danced round in our heads. And mum in her nightie, and dad in his shorts, had just settled down to watch TV sports. When outside the house a mad ruckus arose, loud squeaking and banging woke us from our doze. We ran to the screen door, peeked cautiously out, snuck onto the deck, then let out a shout. Guess what had woken us up from our snooze? But a rusty old ute pulled by eight mighty roos. The cheerful man driving was giggling with glee, and we both knew at once who this plump bloke must be. Now I'm telling the truth, it's all dinky die. Those eight kangaroos fairly soared through the sky. Santa leaned out the window to pull at the reins and encouraged the roos by calling their names. Now Kylie, now Kirsty, now Shazza and Shane, on Kipper, on Skipper, on Beza and Wayne. Park up on that water tank, grab a quick drink. I'll scoot down the gum tree, be back in a wink. So up to the tank those eight kangaroos flew, with the ute full of toys and Santa Claus too. He slid down the gum tree and jumped to the ground. Then in through the window, he sprang with a bound. He had bright sunburned cheeks and a milky white beard. A jolly old joker was how he appeared. He wore red stubby shorts and old thongs on his feet and a hat of deep crimson as shade from the heat. His eyes bright as opals, oh, how they twinkled. And, like a goanna, his skin was quite wrinkled. His shirt was stretched over a round bulging belly, which shook when he moved like a plate full of jelly. A fat stack of prezzies he flung from his back, and he looked like a swaggy unfastening his pack. He spoke not a word, but bent down on one knee, 
to position our goodies beneath the Yule tree. Surfboard and footy ball shapes for us too, and for Dad, tongs to use on the new barbecue. A mysterious package he left for our mum, then he turned and he winked and he held up his thumb. He strolled out on deck and his ruse came on cue, flung his sack in the back and prepared to shoot through. He bellowed out loud as they swooped past the gates, Merry Christmas to all, and good on ya, mates. And that was An Aussie Night Before Christmas. Then I began looking for some stories written in or about an Australian Christmas. And after extensive research on the internet, consisting of about 10 minutes in a Google search, I did find a few things. I decided to read a story by an Australian writer named Henry Lawson. Henry Archibald Hertzberg Lawson was born June 17, 1867, and died on September 2, 1922. And according to the internet, he was an Australian writer and bush poet. Lawson is among the best-known Australian poets and fiction writers of the colonial period, and is often called Australia's greatest short story writer. He was a vocal nationalist and Republican. Lawson regularly contributed to The Bulletin, uh, a journal or newspaper of that time, and many of his works helped popularize the Australian vernacular in fiction. He wrote prolifically in the 1890s, after which his output declined, in part due to struggles with alcoholism and mental illness. At times destitute, he spent periods in psychiatric institutions, and after he died in 1922 following a cerebral hemorrhage, Lawson became the first Australian writer to be granted a state funeral. He was the son of the poet, publisher, and feminist Louisa Lawson, and that's what Wikipedia has to say about him. I don't think I've ever heard of Henry Lawson before. It sounds like he lived a very interesting life. So what I'm going to do is read his story called The Ghosts of Many Christmases. He goes back through his personal history and reflects on Christmases of his past. And since I love to share people's memories of Christmas, I thought this would be an appropriate uh, reading. The Ghosts of Past Christmases by Henry Lawson Did you ever trace back your Christmas days? Right back to the days when you were innocent and Santa Claus was real? At times you thought you were very wicked, but you never realize how innocent you were until you've grown up and knocked about the world. Let me think. Christmas in an English village, with bare hedges and trees, and leaden skies that lie heavy on our souls as we walk. With overcoat and umbrella, sons of English exiles and exiles in England. And think of bright skies and suns overhead. And sweeps of country disappearing into the haze, and blue mountain ranges melt into the azure of distant lower skies. And curves of white and yellow sand beaches, and runs of shelving yellow sandstone sea walls. And the glorious Pacific. Sydney Harbor at sunrise, and the girls we took to Manly Beach. Christmas in a London flat, gloom and slush and soot. It is not the cold that affects us Australians so much, but the horrible gloom. We get heartsick for the sun. Christmas at sea, three Christmases in fact. One going saloon from Sydney to Australia early in the golden 90s with funds and one, the Christmas after next, coming back steerage with nothing but the clothes we'd slept in, all of which was bad judgment on our part. The order and manner of our going and coming should have been reversed. Christmas in a Hessian tent in the Western, with so many old mates from the East, it was just old times over again. We had five pounds of corned beef in a kerosene tin to boil it in, and while we were talking of old things, the skeleton of a kangaroo dog grabbed the beef out of the boiling water and disappeared into the scrub, which made it seem more like old times than ever. Christmas going to New Zealand with experience by the SS Tasmania. We had plum duff, but it was too soggy for us to eat. 
We dropped it overboard, lest it should swamp the boat, and it sank to the ooze. The Tasmania was saved on that occasion, but she foundered next year outside Gisborne. Perhaps the cook had made more duff. There was a letter from a sweetheart of mine amongst her males when she went down, but that's got nothing to do with it, though it made some difference in my life. Christmas on a new telegraph line with a party of lining gangmen in New Zealand. There is no duff nor roast because there was no firewood within 20 minutes. The cook used to pile armfuls of flax sticks under the billies and set light to them when the last man arrived in camp. Christmas in Sydney, with a dozen invitations out to dinner. The one we accepted was to a sensible Australian Christmas dinner, a typical one as it should be, and will be before the Commonwealth is many years old. Everything cold except the vegetables, the hose playing on the veranda and vines outside, the men dressed in sensible pajama-like suits, and the women and girls fresh and cool and jolly, instead of being hot and cross and looking like boiled carrots, and feeling like boiled rags, and having headaches after dinner, as would have been the case had they broiled over the fire in a hot kitchen all the blazing forenoon to cook a scalding, indigestible dinner, as many Australian women do, and for no other reason than that it was the fashion in England. One of those girls was very pretty, and, ah well, Christmas dinner in a greasy Sydney sixpenny restaurant that opened a few days before with brass band going at full blast at the door by way of advertisement. Roast beef, one! Cabbage and potatoes, one! Plum pudding, two! That was the first time I dined to music. The Christmas dinner was a good one, but my appetite was spoiled by the expression of the restaurant keeper, a big man with a heavy jowl, who sat by the door with a cold eye on the sixpences and didn't seem to have much confidence in human nature. Christmas, no, that was New Year, on the Warrego River, out back, an alleged river with a sickly stream that looked like bad milk. We spent most of that night hunting round in the dark and feeling on the ground for camel and horse droppings, with which to build fires and make smoke round our camp to keep off the mosquitoes. The mosquitoes started at sunset and left off at daybreak, when the flies got to work again. Christmas dinner under a brush shearing shed. Mutton and plum pudding and 50 miles from beer. An old bush friend of mine, one Jimmy Nolet, who ranked as a bullock driver, told me of a Christmas time he had. He was cut off by the floods with his team and had nothing to eat for four days but potatoes and honey. He said potatoes dipped in honey weren't so bad, but he had to sleep on bullock yolks laid on the ground to keep him out of the water. And he got a toothache that paralyzed him all down one side. And speaking of plum pudding, I consider it one of the most barbarous institutions of the British. It is a childish, silly, savage superstition. It must have been a savage inspiration, looking at it all round, but then it isn't so long that the British were savages. I got a letter last year from a mate of mine in Western Australia, prospecting the awful desert out beyond Whitefeather, telling me all about a parish he did on plum pudding. He and his mates were camped at the Boulder Soak with some three or four hundred miles, mostly sand and dust, between them and the nearest grocer's shop. They ordered a case of mixed canned provisions from Perth to reach them about Christmas. They didn't believe in plum pudding. There are a good many British institutions that Bushmen don't believe in. But the cook was a new chum, and he said he'd go home to his mother if he didn't have plum pudding for Christmas, so they ordered a can for him. Meanwhile, they hung out on kangaroo and damper and the knowledge that it couldn't last forever. It was in a terrible drought, and the kangaroos used to come into the soak for water, and they were too weak to run. Later on, when wells were dug, the kangaroos used to commit suicide in them. There was generally a kangaroo in the well in the morning. The storekeeper packed the case of tinned dog, etc., but by some blunder he or his man put the label on the wrong box, and it went per rail, per coach, per camel, and the last stage per boot and reached my friend's camp on Christmas Eve, to their great joy. My friend broke the case open by the light of the campfire. Here, Jack, he said, tossing out a can. Here's your plum pudding. He held the next can in his hand a moment longer and read the label twice. Why, he sent two, he said, and I'm sure I only ordered one. Never mind, Jack will have a tuck out. And he held the next can close to the fire and blinked at it hard. I'm damned if he hasn't sent three tins of plum pudding. 
Never mind. We'll manage to scoff some of it between us. You're in luck's way this trip, Jack, and no mistake. He looked harder still at the fourth can. Then he read the labels on the other tins again to see if he'd made a mistake. He didn't tell me what he said then, but a milder mate suggested that the storekeeper had sent half a dozen tins by mistake. But when they reached the seventh can, the language was not even fit to be written down on a piece of paper and handed up to the magistrate. The storekeeper had sent them an unbroken case of canned plum pudding. And probably by this time he was wondering what had become of that blanky case of duff. The kangaroos disappeared about this time and my friend tells me that he and his mates had to live for a mortal fortnight on canned plum pudding. They tried it cold and they tried it boiled, they tried it baked, they had it fried and they had it toasted. They had it for breakfast, dinner and tea. They had nothing else to think or talk or argue and quarrel about and they dreamed about it every night, my friend says. It wasn't a joke. It gave them the nightmare and day horrors. They tried it with salt. They picked as many of the raisins out as they could and boiled it with salt kangaroo. They tried to make Yorkshire pudding out of it, but it was too rich. My friend was experimenting in trying to discover a simple process for separating the ingredients of plum pudding when a fresh supply of provisions came along. He says he was never so sick of anything in his life and he has had occasion to be sick of a good many things. The new chum, Jackaroo, is still alive, but he won't ever eat plum pudding any anymore, he says. It cured him of homesickness. He wouldn't eat it even if his bride made it. Christmas on the goldfields in the last of the roaring days. In the palmy days of Gulgong and those fields. Let's see, it must be nearly 30 years ago. Oh, how the time goes by. Santa Claus, young, fresh-faced and eager. Santa Claus, blonde and flaxen. Santa Claus, dark. Santa Claus with a brogue and Santa Claus speaking broken English. Soon Tong Lee and company, storekeepers, with strange, delicious sweets that melted in our mouths, and rum toys and Chinese dolls for the children. Lucky diggers, who were with difficulty restrained from putting pound notes and nuggets and expensive lockets and things into the little one's stockings. Santa Claus in flannel shirt and clay-covered moleskins. Diggers who bought lollies by the pound and sent the little ones home with as much as they could carry. Diggers who gave a guinea or more for a toy for a child that reminded them of some other child at home. Diggers who took as many children as they could gather on short notice into a store. Slapped a five pound note down on the counter and told the little ones to call for whatever they wanted. Who set a family of poor children side by side on the counter and called for a box of mixed children's boots. The best? and fitted them on with great care and anxiety and frequent inquiries as to whether they pinched, who stood little girls and boys on the counter and called for the most expensive frocks, the latest and best in sailor suits, and the brightest ribbons, and things came long distance by bullock dray and were expensive in those days. Impressionable diggers, and most of them were, who threw nuggets to singers and who sometimes slipped a parcel into the hands of a little boy or girl with instructions to give it to an elder sister, or young mother perhaps, whom the digger had never spoken to, only worshipped from afar off. And the elder sister or young mother, opening the parcel, would find a piece of jewelry or a costly article of dress, and wonder who sent it. Ah, the wild generosity of luck-intoxicated diggers of those days, and the reckless generosity of the drinkers. We thought it was going to last forever. If I don't spend it on the bairns, I'll spend it on the drink, Sandy Burns used to say. I had none of me own, and the last who was to give me bairns, she couldn't wait. Sandy had kept steady and traveled from one end of the world to the other, and roughed it and toiled for five years. And the very day he bottomed his golden hole on the brown snake lead at Happy Valley, he got a letter from his girl in Scotland to say she had grown tired of waiting and was married. Then he drank and drink and luck went together. Gulgong on New Year's Eve. Rows and rows of lighted tents and campfires with a clear glow over it all. Bonfires on the hills and diggers romping around them like big boys. Tin kettling, gold dishes and spoons and fiddles and hammers on pointing anvils and sticks and empty kerosene tins. They made a row. Concertinas and cornets, shotguns, pistols and crackers, all sorts of instruments and Auld Lang Syne in one mighty chorus. 
And now, a wretched little pastoral town, a collection of glaring corrugated iron hip roofs, and maybe a rotting propped up bark or weatherboard humpy or two relics of the roaring days, a dried up storekeeper and some withered hags, a waste of caved in holes with rain washed mullock heaps and quartz and gravel glaring in the sun. Thistles and burrs where old bars were. Drought, dryness, desolation, and goats. Lonely graves in the bush and gray old diggers here and there, anywhere in the world. Doing anything for a living, lonely yet because of the girls who couldn't wait, but prospecting and fussicking here and there and dreaming still. They thought it was going to last forever. Christmas at Urendere Creek amongst the old selection farms in the western spurs of the Blue Mountains. They used to call it the Pipe Clay 30 years ago, but the old black names have been restored. They make plum puddings yet weeks beforehand and boil them for hours and hang them in cloths to the rafters to petrify. Then they take them down and boil them again. On Christmas Eve, the boys cut boughs or young pines on the hills and drag them home and lash them to the veranda pots. Ted has turned up with his wife and children from his selection out back. The wheat is in and shearing is over on the big stations. Tom, steady going old Tom, clearing or fencing or dam sinking up country, hides his tools in the scrub and gets his horse and rides home. Aunt Emma, to everyone's joy, has arrived from Sydney with presents, astonishing bargains in frocks, etc., and marvelous descriptions of town life. Joe, poor Mary's husband, who had been droving in Queensland since the Christmas before last, while poor Mary, who is afraid to live alone, shared a skillion and the family quarrels at home Joe rides day and night and reaches at sunrise on Christmas morning, tired and dusty, gaunt and haggard, but with his last check intact. He kisses his wife and children and throws himself on the bed to sleep till dinner time, while Mary moves around softly, hushes the baby, dresses it and herself, lays out Joe's clean things and bends over him now and then and kisses him, perhaps, as he sleeps. In the morning, the boys and some of the men go down to the creek for a swim in the big shady pool under the she-oaks and take their Sunday clothes with them and dress there. Some of them ride into town to church and some of the women and children drive in in spring carts. The children to go to Sunday school, leaving mother and the eldest daughter usually a hard-worked, disappointed, short-tempered girl, at home to look after the cooking. There is some anxiety, mostly on mother's part, about Jim, who is wild and who is supposed to be somewhere out back. There was a, a piece of blue paper out for Jim on account of sweating or illegally using a horse, but his mother or father has got a hint, given in a kindly way by the police sergeant, that Jim is free to come home and stay at home if he behaves himself. There is usually a horse missing when Jim goes out back. Jim turns up all right, save that he has no money, and is welcomed with tearful affection by his favorite sister, Mary, shakes hands silently with his father, and has a long whispered conversation with his mother, which leaves him very subdued. His brothers forbear to sneer at him, partly because it's Christmas, partly on mother's account, and thirdly, because Jim can use his hands. Aunt Emma, who is fond of him, cheers him up wonderfully. The family sit down to dinner. An old mate of your father's, a bearded old digger, has arrived and takes the place of honor. I knowed your father, Sonny, on the diggings long before any of you was ever thought on. The family have only been a few hours together, yet there is an undercurrent of growling that, to the stranger, mysterious yet evident undercurrent of nastiness and resentment, which goes on in all families and drags many a promising young life down. But Aunt Emma and the old mate makes things brighter, and so the dinner of hot roast and red-hot plum pudding passes off fairly well. The men sleep the afternoon away and wake up bathed in perspiration and helpless. Some of the women have headaches. After tea, they gather on the veranda in the cool of the evening, and that's the time when the best sides of their nature and the best parts of the past have a chance of coming uppermost, and perhaps they begin to feel a bit sorry that they are going to part again. The local races or sports on Boxing Day. There is nothing to keep the boys home over New Year. Ted and his wife go back to their lonely life on their selection. 
Tom returns to his fencing or tank sinking contract. Jim, who has borrowed a couple of quid from Tom, goes out back with strong resolutions for the new year and shears stragglers, breaks in horses, cooks and clerks for survey parties and gambles and drinks and gets into trouble again. Maybe Joe knocks about the farm a bit before going into the great northwest with another mob of cattle. The last time I saw the old year out at Yurundari, the bushfires were burning all over the ranges and looked like great cities lighted up. No need for bonfires then. The last time I saw the old year out at Yurundari, the bushfires were burning all over the ranges and looked like great cities lighted up. No need for bonfires then. Christmas in Burke, the metropolis of the great pastoral scrubs and plains, 500 miles west with the thermometer 100 and something scary in the shade. The rough, careless shearers come in from stations many dusty miles out in the scrubs to have their Christmas sprees, to drink and shout and fight, and have the horrors, some of them, and be run in and locked up with difficulty within sound of a church-going bell. The Burke Christmas is a very beery and exciting one. The hotels shut up in front on Christmas Day to satisfy the law, or out of consideration for the feelings of the sergeant in charge of the police station, and open behind to satisfy the public, who are supposed to have made the law. Sensible cold dinners are the fashion in Burke, I think, with the hose going in free and easy costumes. The free males take their blankets and sleep in the park. The women sleep with doors and windows open and the married men on mattresses on the verandas across the open doors, in case of accidents. Christmas in Sydney, though Christmas holidays are not so popular as Easter, or even Anniversary Day in the Queen City of the South, buses, electric, cable, and the old steam trams, crowded with holiday makers with baskets, harbor boats loaded down to the water's edge with harbor picnic parties, a trip round the harbor and to the head of Middle Harbor, one shilling return. Strings of tourist trains running over the Blue Mountains in the Great Zigzag and up the coast to Gosford and Brisbane water and down the south coast to beautiful Illawarra until after New Year. Hundreds of young fellows going out with tents to fish in lonely bays or shoot in the mountains and rough it properly like bushmen not with deck chairs, crockery, a piano, and servants. For you can camp in the grand and rugged solitude of the bush within a stone's throw of the city, so to speak. Jolly camps and holiday parties all around the beautiful bays of the harbor and up and down the coast and all close to home. Camps in the moonlight on sandy beaches under great dark bluffs and headlands where yellow shelving sandstone cliffs run, broken only by sandy beached bays, and where the silver and white breakers leap and roar. In Manly Beach on a holiday, thousands of people in fresh summer dress, hundreds of bare-legged, happy children running where the blue sea over the white sand rolls, racing in and out with the rollers, playing with the glorious Pacific. Manly, our village, Manly Beach, where we used to take our girls with the most beautiful harbor in the world on one side and the width of the grandest ocean on the other, ferny gullies and fairy dells to north and south, and every shady nook its merry party or happy couple. Manly Beach, I remember five years ago? Oh, how the time goes by. And two names that were written together in the sand when the tide was coming in. And the boat home in the moonlight, past the heads, where we felt the roll of the ocean, and the moonlight harbor, and the harbor lights of Sydney, the grandest of them all. And that was The Ghosts of Many Christmases by Australian writer Henry Lawson. And that was collected in a book of short stories called The Romance of the Swag, and that was published in 1907. Now, I, I really enjoyed that and so he, he begins with that question. I think that's a great question for us to consider, where he says, did you ever trace back your Christmas days? You know, that might be fun sometime to sit down and to write out what were some of our past Christmases like? The term digger was an Australian slang term for a soldier. You know, they're away from home, they're away from their homes, 
And so they're finding children in the community to give presents to and to give gifts to and money to. And maybe if, you know, hey, if you have a hot sister at home or a lonely mother, you know, here's a gift for them too. (laughs) Just a lot of charming memories in this story in a country I don't know very much about. So an idea for us to, to journal our Christmases, to make a record of them. And so to Kate from Australia, thank you so much for sending in your memory. Well, the end of this episode is in sight. So a couple of things before I go. I would love, love, love to hear from you about your favorite Christmas memories. Also, if you are a writer, if you have written any Christmas short stories, any Christmas novels, I'd love to read them on the podcast if you'd give me that permission or have you on and talk about your stories. I think the ability to share our stories is a powerful tool that we need to use in our current time. Help me spread comfort, joy, good cheer, and the happiness of the season by sending me your stories. And we'll gather around the Christmas fire and and we'll share those together. So if you do, please remember that you'll receive a, a sticker and also you'll be entered into a contest to win an ornament. The deadline for that is going to be October 15th. If you get it into me even just a couple of days after that, that would be okay uh, because I won't be recording until a few days after that anyway. But of course, any time of the year, you can send me a a Christmas memory. If you're listening to this in December, yeah, send send me those memories because you'll always receive a free sticker if you send me a Christmas memory. You can find the podcast on Spotify, Amazon Podcasts. We're new on there now. Apple Podcasts. Uh, If you check out the show notes, you can find some other ways to help support the podcast. I'm on Ko-fi as well as Etsy. Just search for Cozy Christmas Podcast and I should be easy to find. I want to say a big thank you to those of you who have bought some ornaments on Etsy as well as made some Ko-fi donations. I, I do appreciate the help. And also thank you to those listeners who have sent in their Christmas memories. So at any time of the year, if you have a memory you want to share with me, please get that to CozyChristmasPodcast at gmail.com or slide into my DMs on any of the social media accounts that I'm on. In my research, I was watching an Australian cooking show and the chef made some meringue and the crowd cheered which was surprising since most Australians like to boo meringue. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, that's all for today. Remember to be kind and to share your stories and know that there is nothing in the world more irresistibly contagious than laughter and good humor. Have a very Merry Christmas.